Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1, where we challenge the assumptions of our current society to resist oppression and investigate alternative ways of living for a world based on justice, solidarity, and sustainability. Welcome to the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ 102.1 FM, your local community independent radio station. My name's Andy and I'll be hanging out with you for the next hour on Jagger and Turable land. And I must say, happy NADOC to everybody. It is the week of recognizing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture in this country. And there is the Family Fun Day on today at Musgrave Park. And i got to say, personally, I think that there should be a national public holiday to celebrate our um, first cultures in this continent. And I don't understand why there's not. And so I think NADOC is something worth celebrating. Um, Often I would do a show on um, Aboriginal issues, but it didn't quite work out this week. But what we will be talking about is degrowth. It's a somewhat radical way of thinking about economics. Some would say it's blasphemy in our modern religion of capitalist growth. Um, But different people have thought a lot about it as a sustainable way to live with this planet and a way to live that's best for everybody. And I'll be interviewing a couple of those people, Terry Lay and Anitra Nelson. Both of them will be involved giving talks in the week of webinars next week that um, Degrowth Network Australia is putting on. And you get a sneak preview today with two of Australia's um, long-running theorists on degrowth. We'll talk about different um, models of what society could look like differently and maybe how we can get there. And so we'll get into it to start off with talking with Terry Lay. My name's Terry Lay. I'm living in Melbourne now. I'm, I'm retired from the University of Newcastle. I had a position there as a, 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 in sociology. And you Whatever. are part of the Degrowth Network of Australia that's doing some webinars this week. That's right. Before we go further, I guess, do you want to start us off with saying briefly what this word degrowth means to you? I, th- I think of degrowth as, as being, in the, f- in the first case, degrowth means uh, a degrowth in globally in the use of resources. Um, and, you know, like, um, but, but it's also, it's also a ref- refers to um, a way to, to make it, um, to reduce the use of resources in a way that um, doesn't, you know, cause people to have terrible trouble in their lives. You know, I like, in other words, to become massively um, p- 
poor. It's not about austerity as such. It's about living a better life in many ways um, through through conviviality, um, through sharing uh, the resources that we have globally, and through uh, working out ways of of living uh, without without causing huge environmental damage that are nevertheless satisfying and, and fun. And as part of the webinars, you're going to be talking on food systems, and I assume for this you'll be drawing on some of the research that you've done in Africa. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, okay, so definitely. Um, so I spent <coughs> quite a few years going to, to visiting Africa. Um, I had a number of students um, come over who were working with the, um, you know, as agricultural officers in South Africa. And, and other countries and um, and I went over there to have a look at the sort of food security projects. Now I don't know if you know this but like up to sort of between 25 and 50 percent of <coughs> children in rural areas in Africa and, and also in urban areas for that matter are stunted due to lack of growth. So, um, so obviously food security is a huge problem um, and what I was interested in is why so many of the projects uh, are failing. And so <clears throat> I, what I discovered about that was that <clears throat> the problem is that um, pe people who are doing subsistence farming and have very small holdings are being encouraged to develop food security by growing crops for sale. You know, an entrepreneurial takeoff is what sort of uh, the government's programs in, in most of these African countries. And the few projects that were working were basically designed around permaculture principles uh, and involved maintaining a subsistence economy and, and kind of diversifying food production and improving sort of organic agriculture techniques. And so um, a particular one that um, I've made a film about with my sister called the Chikukwa Project was a really successful pro project in Zimbabwe where the whole community joined together to um, to improve their food security through, uh, for example, making huge swales across the landscape to trap water that was um, running down the hills and causing erosion and, and so on, and to improve the soil quality and to, um, you know, to diversify the, the vegetables and plants that they were using growing and uh, improve their maize crops and, and so on and so forth. So... so do you think that we could draw lessons from this in Australia where food security is not an issue and we are a food exporter and grow massive amounts of food? Do you think there are lessons we can still take from this? I, I think, I think yeah, definitely. Um, I think there are a number of lessons we could take from this. First, first of all, I, I think that um, the kind of food um, production that we have now globally and, and especially in, in the global north countries is really unsustainable. And, and I think that um, partly that's because we're making use of rare reserves of phosphates that we're running out of. Um, and partly it's because we can't afford the kind of transport costs that, and the packaging costs and the refrigeration and storage costs that are Im implied by the current food uh, production and consumption system. So uh, what we need really to do is to localise food so that we can... Um, we can grow our our food with, without uh, incurring huge energy costs in transporting food, um, and so so the, the implication of that is that um, the the successful uh, community farming enterprise uh, you know um, 
projects that are in Africa, the ones like that I was talking about, like the, making use of permaculture, uh, give us an idea of how, how it may be possible to do that and what that would look like on the ground. I mean, in, in the case of the Chukuka project, just to sort of flesh that out a bit, I mean, basically what, what you've got is, I'd say roughly, you know, a thousand square metres for the orchard, another thousand square metres for... Um, F uh, for vegetable growing and then you've got maybe uh, a, a hectare or something like that for, for growing the maize uh, so that's a carbohydrate crop and then you've probably got another six hectares for growing for growing timber you know to, to supply the firewood and, and, uh, and building materials and so on so that's safe for a household of six and I, I basically think that's a kind of sustainable um, localized food production. I mean, it may not have to take that form. Um, for example, we could have small towns um, serviced by a periphery of, of farms, like in this sort of traditional European model, um, and, and, you know, like, and use transport like sort of bicycles and, and bicycle carry, carrying stuff, or, or we could use ox carts or donkey carts or whatever. Um, so, yeah. So I, so I think it's, it's, it's relevant in that way and it's also relevant in terms of the social stuff that had to be done to make uh, these successful projects work, you know, like involving the whole, the whole community, making um, small localised uh, democratic face-to-face -face meetings to, to decide things and decide what they needed to do at different times. Uh, yeah, this is something you've touched on in your research as well. You, uh, the politics of permaculture beyond just a, a way of gardening that it implies a different way of people relating. Can you tell us a bit more about that? I think I'm going to sort of start off big picture on that and, and say this. Okay, so the, the degrowth movement um, at the moment in the, in the world is like, there's a heavy emphasis on, on Europe in the sense that degrowth is, is strongest in Europe. In, in other countries, like in Australia, for example, um, permaculture occupies that political space. In, in the United States, it's like the peak oil movement probably. The first thing I'd say is degrowth itself and, and also all of these other movements are really committed to system change. They believe that the capitalist economy is not sustainable and that we move, need to move transition to another kind of system. So like within that framework, um, what, what you have in, in degrowth are different tendencies within the movement that are kind of allied in the sense that they, they uh, agree, agree on in, in general, like, for example, that we need to share resources together to build community and that we need to, you know, degrow de the use of resources and all that. But, but where they differ is in sort of more, more in the ideas of what kind of transition to what sort of post-capitalist economic and political system. And so what I, what I detect both in the permaculture movement and in degrowth um, more generally is, the, is one, one kind of key idea which is fairly mainstream in the environmentalist movement at the moment is we need to move to a steady state economy like the one described by Herman Daly in the 70s and that we need to get there by, you know, um, government, intensive government regulation like the welfare state on steroids is one of the ways I kind of talk about it. So, so that's like a really common idea like, for example, that we should have government support for cooperatives. We should have more public ownership of education and transport and energy services and things like that. Uh, that we should have a system of 
controlling the market through cap and trade systems, you know, like rationing the use of um, material resources basically through a government plan and, and kind of government regulation. I'll call that the steady state economy, I think, because that's probably the least confusing way to describe it. And then we have another kind of vision, which is also coming out of Europe and and also presently within the permaculture movement itself to some small degree, um, is the idea that we, we need to move to an economy without money at all. And like in Australia, um, the theorist who's most associated with that is Anitra Nelson, who's speaking at the webinar next week for degrowth. Um, and the idea of that is that we should have voluntary uh, community bodies deciding both what's what we need to you know for, for our consumption and that vol vol voluntary groups of uh, of workers will also form collectives um, to provide um, the goods and services that we need by coming to agree agreements or compacts with the intended consumers and that these 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 agreements you know are kind of worked out by negotiation between two parties or or, or whatever and that and that that there's no money involved in that. So one way of describing that is to call it the gift economy, uh, which is the term I've used for many years. But, but you know, there are a number of different ways to describe it. I mean, I think um, Haberman, Frederick Haberman in Germany talks about it as the, um, as commoning, you know, or an e, as she calls it an e-commony, you know, like rather than an economy, it's an e-commony. So, so in a sense, these two strands coexist in the degrowth movement at the moment. Um, and I think that, you know, that's fine. That's the way it is. You know, I don't have any problem with that in a way, but I think, I think it's, it's it, sometimes how, if you ask me a question of, you know, how will we organize this socially? Um, there's no one answer coming out of the degrowth movement as far as that's concerned. I think what you could say definitively about them is that they the degrowth movement is not in favor of, you know, nationalizing everything as sort of state socialist model. However, democratic, they're not really don't really think that's going to work um, to restrain environmental damage or you know whatever to be a nice place to live and so on. And they're not in favour of you know capitalism as it as it is now. Yeah, there's a, a tension there between those trying to reshape the economy with like cap and trade mechanisms or something requires like a big government, a big state, and presumably some level of coercion you know which is how government works at the moment whereas yeah that gift economy is something very different very small scale um figured out by in independent communities i mean do you see those two as conflicting or can they work together i think they're very that ultimately they're, they're quite different models yeah for sure um in terms of small scale I yeah I'm I'm I'm, I'm doubtful about that. I mean I think um, the gift economy is quite capable of large scale through through chains of agreements between people. So if we think of something like a, a train service as operating nationally in Australia, you know, like in a post-capitalist in context, uh, in the context how it would be organised in a gift economy would be um, that. The people who were kind of making steel would be providing um, steel for the people who were who making rails who might be in a different town and, and they would have an agreement to supply the rails to the people who were 
creating the track and then you know and 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 so on so there'd be like chains of compacts or agreements between different communities providing different inputs into this national rail service and and yet and and at the end of the day what you'd have is a, a, a rail service pretty much like what we have now only running on solar power and wind power and it's like it, it will be supported by these different community groups working uh, together through various kinds of agreements. Um, so I don't, I don't actually see the gift economy as necessarily small scale. I, 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 what, what, I'd, what I'd say about that is that I, I think that um, in the context of degrowth and especially energy degrowth, then small communities serviced by their own agricultural you know, hinterland like nearby um, are really the only sustainable way to go, right? And so whether, whether you go for a, a sort of um, steady state economy or a gift economy, you're going to end up with like the large cities, huge mega cities like Melbourne and so on, I don't think are really sustainable. I mean, I think it makes sense to be trying to... Um, it, you know, like degrow those cities and trying to make them more sustainable as that's like a reasonable thing to be doing right now. But in the long term, I think what we'd probably move to is more like small towns linked by rail links um, as the way forward. And I think both of those visions of degrowth would imply that. So let's look, go back to the train service. And what I, what I probably should now explain is, okay, within the steady state vision of, of the a post-capitalist future, the trains, the train service would be run by a government department. I mean, you know, like that's really obvious. That's how they do it, and that they and the people making steel would be either a private firm contracted running according to very strict environmental regulations set by government, or it could be a government department, depending on you know how how they organise that. So yeah, yeah. So. I mean, one of the things you talked about there about, you know, getting rid of cities like Melbourne and going into smaller communities, I mean, this is really massive social changes besides any of the actual physical changes of breaking up a big city or something like that. Like, it's massive social changes. And you do have a podcast where you talk about system change. I guess, um, to finish off, like, how... How do you envision that something like that could come about, you know, changes of that magnitude? Well, I think one way, there's a slow, there's a slow way and the quick way, if you like. So, so the slow way is, 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 what, is that what happens is that we, we gradually de develop more and more uh, organisations that, that are committed to living an alternative, sustainable life and that these, these gradually sort of set up and and what in terms of dismantling a city like Melbourne, what would that imply is that people would gradually, you know, move out to the to, to rural areas, and we'd work out how to make that work, and we'd, uh, you know, probably intensify the train systems that we now have to make that um, feasible, and and we just do it over like a thirty year period. Um, in terms of the, the quick way, if you like, is that we'd have a revolution, you know, like the, we, people would just get totally fed up with the way capitalism's not handling the environmental crisis and there'd be huge mass protests in the streets and the army and police force would go, yeah, we're on side with this, this new, new way of doing things. And, and we just sort of start 
so then what we do is we'd probably have voluntary work groups, you know, dismantling people's houses and recycling the materials and taking them out to the country and building the rail services that we'd need and so on. So it'd be much more like, you know, a, a plan coordinated through agreements between people and voluntary groups or, you know, or, or in some other way. All right, well, thanks. And you're giving a talk this week at the Degrowth webinar. Yes, I will be. I'll be talking about, you know, different systems of food and how they relate to degrowth. All right, thanks very much, Terry. Thank you, Andy. Bye. On the Paradigm Shift on 4ZZZ, we were talking to Terry Lay about degrowth, why it might be needed, what it might look like, and how it might come about. Of course, it may be the case that we unwillingly uh, face a bit of degrowth at some point in the future due to an environmental catastrophe or um, financial crisis, the way our system's currently set up. But people like Terry are trying to talk about how we could do it in an orderly way that's best for everybody, and maybe our lives would even be a bit better. Another prominent degrowth theorist in this country is Anitra Nelson. She is also going to be talking next week at the Degrowth Week of Webinars being put on by New Economy Network Australia. I spoke to Anitra as well to hear her thoughts on the matter. My name is Anitra Nelson and I call myself an activist scholar. So I'm affiliated to the University of Melbourne and I've worked in the university sector for decades. But I'm also an activist and in fact a lot of the work that I do in a scholarly way is connected with my activism. Yeah, and it seems your activism generally falls under the broad banner that we might call degrowth. And you are speaking uh, next week at a, the Degrowth Week of Webinars. Can we start off by just you giving a bit of an explanation about what you understand by this term degrowth? Sure. Well, what degrowth recognises is, is that growth economies of the kind that we live in in Australia promote the enormous throughput of energy and materials. And in a growth economy, our use of materials and energy is just increasing because of that growth dynamic. And for that reason, we have, um, we're ecologically unsustainable. And also we have added problems of inequity. So, the degrowth principles are to reduce the throughput of materials and energy in such a way as there's more greater equity between people. And uh, so that's really basically what the movement is moving towards. Now, in your own research, you haven't just talked about this broad idea and about some of the you know, the problems of growth, uh, economy, of environmental or social problems. You have also explored in lots of different ways um, alternative uh, systems that we could live by, and you've done a lot of writing on some of these topics. Can you give us a bit of an introduction about what some of the ground that you've covered is? Okay, so I've co-authored a book called Exploring Degrowth, A Critical Guide, 
And I did that with a French activist who now lives in Budapest. And so exploring degrowth is really a basic outline of what degrowth is, what are the theories, both scientific and philosophical, that underpin degrowth, and also about the movement and how activists are putting in place practical examples of both individual household um, changes to their lifestyles, but more particularly collective ones, so that we're producing in different ways and consuming in different ways. And two collections, which I've also co-edited with different co-editors, uh, are Housing for Degrowth and Food for Degrowth. And in both of those collections, as the titles suggest, we talk about different ways that collectives are introducing new forms of cooperatives that are following through on degrowth. And similarly, how housing is being approached in different ways to promote degrowth. Yeah, I'm interested in exploring uh, that a little bit more, maybe to start off with the housing idea. It's one of the basic needs that all humans have is some kind of shelter and um, our society has come to generally do that in a, a certain way of um, property ownership and big specialised building companies and I guess nuclear families and things like that. There's a, a lot that a lot of factors influence how we do housing. What's been some of the alternatives that you've looked at? Well, degrowth promotes a series of different kinds of housing, more in the area of what we often see as alternative housing, like tiny houses, houses that are built out of natural materials by the people who are going to live in them, we emphasise smaller spaces for people to live in. For instance, Australia has some of the biggest houses in the world when you're looking at per capita house, uh, house space. And so another approach that degrowth takes, which is probably particularly useful for Australians to think about, is for having households that have larger numbers of people in them. So they might not just be a nuclear family, but more joint households, maybe couples gaining a space and dividing up the household um, so that they have different spaces that they share and other parts of the spaces that they have separately and on a bigger scale, that's often referred to as co-housing. So those are some of the kinds of uh, different ways of approaching uh, home uh, living in housing. Um, I nearly went to say home ownership because I suppose degrowth discusses a lot the negatives of home ownership and the ways in which it would it is really preferable 
versus in a mobile society where we want to move between different forms of housing and whatever, to be having more of a system which is like social housing, all sorts of different ways of looking at housing so that we're neither using as much energy and materials and even the time that is taken do, doing housework in them and that kind of thing. Yeah, it opens up a lot of uh, questions, I guess, talking about doing housing in a different way, and questions that are very fundamental to our everyday life um, about the energy usage of each house needing one of everything, a kitchen, every kitchen appliance, every bathroom and things like that. Um, and besides any the building materials and things like that. Um, and there's also, I guess, social benefits from living in, in bigger communities, um, especially in the Western world that we're seeing. But it, there's, it's hard as well to live in collective spaces, isn't it? Is that something that you've looked at? What tactics are there for how to socially uh, live together better? Well, I suppose this is one of the areas that um, in Housing for Degrowth, we also bring in that... Housing is just one element about how you might pursue degrowth. And degrowth has a quite holistic sort of program. And one of the aspects of that program is, is that people delink from the monetary work economy. So they might be also within their homes producing more in the way of food and as you say, the kinds of opportunities that are opened up by having collective households is, is that you can share the um, looking after of um, anyone who's sick, anyone who's old, and of course, so children. So in terms of um, looking at things in an holistic kind of way, a lot of people do find, say for instance, deciding that they might enter a more collective arrangement in terms of their household um, seems to bring up a lot of hurdles in terms of, well, maybe they won't then have more mobility in terms of their work. And that's one of the reasons why we're looking at it more in a holistic point of view. There another kind of um, way in which people can be put off living with other people is is that they feel like there would be a lot of conflicts and during the 1990s I lived in two different kinds of eco-collaborative housing models here in Victoria and there we generally um, addressed a lot of those problems through uh, developing skills in conflict resolution and all sorts of other skills in terms of understanding how most easily to respect other people's privacy and to work together and that kind of thing. So I think that if we had more of these kinds of examples that people could see in practice in Australia, then people would not be as frightened or think that there is many risks in actually entering households like that. Yeah, that's really starting to talk about a holistic way when you start to think about uh, 
you know, the things in yourself that make it difficult to get along with other people that bring up conflict. I mean, it's a, a, a really wide spectrum of things we're talking about here from politics and macro politics all the way down to that kind of relational thinking. Yeah, I've look, I've not only lived in eco-collaborative housing, but I've also visited quite a number of eco-collaborative housing models, especially overseas. I think it's quite interesting. I'll tell you what. Okay, so I've lived as a single, I've lived in couple households um, and uh, nuclear family and extended family households as, we, as well as eco-collaborative housing. And I think that one of the most interesting aspects that I found with eco-collaborative housing was this. All of the kinds of protocol around the household tend to be spelled out more simply and more clearly. And they seem to be observed more. And what I've found in the dynamics that that aren't eco-collaborative households, where a lot of those, um, the protocol and of how people do certain things and where things are put and all of that kind of thing um, occur in without those collaborative rules being spelled out and everything is, is that there can be perpetual power dynamics and perpetual conflicts around kind of household arrangements. So I found it quite interesting actually after the 1990s when I went back into a kind of couple household finding that there were some things that were actually producing um, conflicts more than when I was in an eco-collaborative housing situation. I'm interested in moving on to um, another thing that you've written about, which is quite imagination capturing or something of living without money. It's such a a radical idea and such a brave thing to call a book. Can you tell us a bit about that, those ideas? The book didn't come out of the blue. I've been working on this kind of topic for decades. And in fact, I did my PhD thesis um, again in the 1990s, uh, looking at Karl Marx's concept of money. And during that period, I basically formed the opinion that we couldn't become more sustainable and or substantially more sustainable in the to the extent that we really need to um, nor could we really tackle inequities between people unless we did move beyond money because I think that a monetary economy especially because it's a driver of growth and also because money is always about more and less, monetary relations and exchanges between people and producing for trade um, mean that there are inevitable unsustainabilities in terms of the environment. So that became a strong kind of direction that a lot of my studies have taken. I suppose one of the main uh, aspects of the uh, book is is that it tries uh, to illustrate an example of a model of how we could live without money and I think that's one of the biggest problems that a lot of people have when I discuss 
uh, a lot of the problems with money because a lot of people can actually understand problems with money. There's a lot of aspects of money that uh, people question themselves, but it's really how could we move to a different kind of society. Um, probably the easiest way for anyone to absorb some of that is that I've written, I've um, produced an eight minute film, short film, and the hub of it is instead of producing for trade, for the market, what we need to be doing is producing for demand. So imagine that you had a community of around 500 people and, and some of these ideas I've actually drawn from alternative communities that I've lived in. So it's a, there are kind of practices that inform the theory. Well, all of the households uh, within those, um, within that smaller community of 500 people could work up lists of what their needs were for the next six to 12 months. And then you have groups of people working on different sectors of the economy, such as the orchard area, the vegetables, the building of houses, etc., and the making of things. And they contribute to a bigger plan for that community to be as self-sufficient as possible. Now, obviously, there, is no, there are very few areas that can be readily self-sufficient, collectively self-sufficient. So there's also a kind of whole layer about how you exchange with neighbours and all of that kind of thing. But essentially what you're doing is, is, is that you're working out what your demand is. These are all your basic needs. The community themselves are kind of evaluating if what you're suggesting, the household is suggesting is enough or it's too much or whatever. And once you have a system like that up and going, and I know a community in the United States, which is around 100 people, which runs in this kind of way, well then it becomes easy for everyone to sort of contribute to producing and there's no need for a market because you've actually got, you've already got the orders in the first place. So everything that's produced goes back to those people who've ordered them. It's certainly intriguing. I think one of the things that I guess holds us back from embracing ideas like that is just how much our ties of community have weakened and partly the industrial economy, I guess, has allowed us each to consider ourselves a bit more self-sufficient and we can, we've been able to let go of some of the bonds of community that maybe were a lot of work or something. But it is, again, it, there's social changes, I guess, required to make this seem more, more possible, aren't there? Yes, that's exactly right. And a lot of uh, degrowth um, experiments trialling different ways that we can actually transition so um, Vincent Ligi, who's my co-author in Exploring Degrowth, he's the lead author, he's part of a group called Carganomia in Budapest. They have a series of different activities which um, constitute what we call a degrowth formation. So it's different collectives. Some of them are involved with um, making 
um, bikes, repairing bikes, uh, hiring them out, demonstrating to people how important it is to ride bikes rather than drive cars and how it can actually make your life easier to do that. Um, they also have a peri-urban farm and so they have kind of community um, supported agriculture with deliveries from the farm actually using cargo bikes, um, delivering food to specific households. Um, they have a range of other partnerships with people who are bakers, with community gardens in Budapest. And so these are the different kinds of activities that can be developed by groups of degrowth um, activists um, to try and show people how transformation would be possible. Yeah, on a micro level as well, I think there is a lot to be gained from, I guess, reducing how many things in our life money plays a part in, isn't there? Like, just even if you don't envision getting rid of money in a society-wide level, like maximising the number of relationships that aren't dictated by money actually can lead to quite a, a fundamental change in your life, can't it? Well, definitely if we look at home ownership and the estimates at the moment that's, that um, people who are paying mortgages you know, might be spending 40% of their income just on their housing, like imagine everyone spending two days a week just on housing. If you can somehow de-link, and one of the um, main benefits, for instance, um, in terms uh, of money to sharing the household more, is is that you know you could if if you bring in an extra if you're one person in a in a an apartment and you can share it with another person, you're actually halving the amount of money that you need to be putting aside for either rent or for mortgage. So that's a very good example. All right, well, there's many things to talk about, Anitra, and if people want to hear more, they can tune in for the week of webinars, I guess. But it seems a good thing to finish on to talk about your own workshop that you're running that's about... Um, how are we going, making progress towards this as the degrowth movement? Do you want to uh, give us a, a brief view, overview of what, um, what you'll be talking about and how are we going? Well, on an international level, it's important um, to remind people that the last IPCC report mentioned degrowth on numbers of occasions. Um, a lot of people in sustainability are actually understanding that even as we turn over to renewables, the only way we can actually succeed in turning over to renewables is by minimising our energy and the materials that we use. So degrowth is becoming an area that a lot of people are becoming more interested in. And recently in May, there was uh, a few-day conference, for instance, at the uh, European Union, uh, established by members of the European Parliament, where they met and, and heard lots of talks by degrowthers um, in Europe and the UK. 
So I think that it's really a topic that has now kind of found its time. And I think that a lot of people can learn. There are many layers to degrowth. The person I'll be conversing with on Monday has been involved with setting up a tool library in Brisbane. And, you know, there are lots of different kinds of interesting activities and ways in which people are seeing that they could apply degrowth in their lives and seeing the advantages to it. Okay, thanks very much for chatting with us, Anitra. Thank you very much, Andy. That is Anitra Nelson there. Certainly very interesting trying to imagine radically different ways of living that might be more sustainable for our planet and might be more beneficial for the human species as a whole as well. Uh, There'll be plenty more um, talking about degrowth next week. It is a week of webinars all about different topics related to degrowth. Anitra will be talking there, so will Terry Lay, who I spoke to earlier, and a bunch of other thinkers. Mary Graham, a great Yugam Bear Aboriginal auntie, will be talking about Aboriginal thoughts on it as well. And so you can find out more about that on the New Economy website. That is all we have time for on the show. Um, I'll be back next week.